Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, the case for breaking up the banks. We are talking with author David Schirrer. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets and then some. Hello, Paul Vigny and Stephen Grosser here with you again on the Money Beat podcast. Uh, we got to do this one uh in relatively good time, Gross, you got a big meeting coming up, right? Oh, just a normal so me- important. A normal meeting. You're so important in this newsroom. Yeah. You always have meetings. Yep. But you always make time for the podcast, too. I do. What? A, you're a hero. I care. You're a, you do care. And we are, we're very happy to have today with us special guest, David Sheriff. Am I getting it right, David? Is it Sheriff? That's right, yes. That's right? Okay. Uh, founder of Risk Magazine, wrote, worked at The Economist, longtime journalist, has a new book out called simply Break Up the Banks with an explanation point, too. I thought that was very interesting. Not just Break Up the Banks. Break up the banks with a bullet uh, out from Melville House. And, you know, it's interesting, David, we certainly didn't plan on this when we we confirmed this today to be the day to do this interview. But it is interesting that the front page of The Wall Street Journal, top of the front page of The Wall Street Journal, is a story essentially about Dodd-Frank and, and financial reform. It's about and, MetLife. And, oh, but also too big to fail. Well, yeah. right. Yes. About all these things that that you write about in the book so before we even get into your book, I want to ask you, what's your take on that? So MetLife, if, if you haven't heard, folks, uh, has been fighting its designation as a systemically important financial institution for years. And on Wednesday, a judge said, yeah, hey, you know what, MetLife, you're right. You are not that kind of an institution. You are you are relieved from that burden. Uh, David, what do you make of that? And what does it say about Dodd-Frank and what is a too-big-to-fail firm? Uh, well, I'm on the side of MetLife. You may be surprised by that because <laughs> I don't regard them as an at-risk financial institution mm-hmm. in the way that I regard J.P. Morgan or Bank of America. Um, MetLife doesn't take deposits, and um, you know there's no guarantee that the government would step in to save it if it went down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's my view. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Dodd-Frank is important, but I don't think that MetLife comes into that bracket. I think, the, as I say in my book, the, the institutions we need to go after are the ones with insured deposits that are too big to fail. Um, in fact, they've grown bigger since the crisis. Right. And, and, and also earlier, I think it was earlier um, this month still, uh, Neil Kashkari, who's the head of the Fed in uh, Minneapolis. Was the head of the oh, – no, no, he is now. He was – I'm thinking of – yeah, yeah, right, right. He, now I mean, he did come out and say, you know, speaking of Dodd-Frank, that Dodd-Frank does not go far enough in right. dealing with uh, the big banks and, you know, makes, the you know, a similar argument as your book that we need to break up the banks. Why does Dodd-Frank not go far enough um, in your eyes? Um, well, I think um, the, the main area that, got, that Dodd-Frank is, um, is aiming at the size of the banks is the Volcker rule, and that is a, a rule which prevents them or tries to prevent them from trading on their own account. So the Volcker rule would like the banks to um, be intermediaries rather than um, high rollers in the financial markets. Um, and so... Uh, what, what seems to have happened since um, the, the Dodd-Frank bill was passed is that the bank lobby has got extremely strong on um, uh, finding exceptions to this proprietary trading rule. They are allowed to make markets. And in my book, um, 
not a huge lot of difference between making markets, in other words, right. um, taking positions to um, serve clients and taking positions to uh, serve the own account of the bank. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, what, it's funny. As soon as you started, we started talking about MetLife, I, you said something I thought was interesting I want, I want to key on. And one of the things I thought was very interesting about your book, as soon as it, it landed on my desk, was the fact that if you look at it, and, and folks, if you see it in the bookstores, you buy it, it, it's a small volume. It's not a large book. It's not a. It's not physically large. I mean, it's literally a small volume. It's very tightly written. And I thought that was interesting because I think it, 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 even the way the book is presented shows that you are making, you're aiming at one target and you're trying to hit it. And you're trying to hit it. You, you're not trying to do a history of the world of finance. One point, break up the banks. Uh, my my question is, is there the political will for that? I mean, I think it's 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 one thing to actually before we even get to that, I'm, I'm jumping around. Let, let's just say that. Look, uh, what I thought when I saw this book was this guy's making a point. So uh, while we have you here now, make the point. What is the case for reforming the banks? Um, the case is that as um, Neil Kashkari, uh, um, head of the Minneapolis Fed, has said. Um, they're still too big to fail. So that's point number one. The, the problem of too big to fail has not been solved. The other is um, the question, why should I, as a depositor, a, a retail depositor with a high street bank, see that bank also taking risks, um, which I might, might have to then um, take responsibility for as a taxpayer? The two disciplines, to me, are completely separate. Investment banking, high rolling, very honorable profession. But what has it to do with taking deposits in the high street and um, lending money for mortgages and uh, simpler things like that? And it wasn't too long ago that, in fact, this what that was the case. These two businesses were separated, not just here in the U.S., but you also make the point in London or in the U.K. as well. Yeah, um, there have been... Um, Big commissions in but both uh, in, in the European Union and London and the United States, which came to the same conclusion: we need to separate retail finance from investment banking. Um, and the way that has has been suggested to do that is to ring fence the retail bank, or to um, limit the kind of trading that the investment bank can can do. Mm. Um, but in my book. Neither of those solutions is big enough because you still have one institution, probably with a holding company um, sitting on top of it, doing all these things. Right, right. And um, it, it confuses the issue. You, you know, I, I want to get your take on obviously one of the banks that gets mentioned in the book is J.P. Morgan, a gigantic yeah. conglomerate. And they're not the only one, but let, let's use what they do. Let's use J.P. Morgan as an as a platform for explaining why a bank that is too big to fail is a problem. I mean, what is the problem at J.P. Morgan? Um, well, one of the big problems with J.P. Morgan is what we saw um, two years ago in London, uh, a little incident called the London Whale, <laughs> in which <laughs> J.P. Morgan's um, corporate investment office lost about $6 billion. Um, and that was kind of under the noses, not only of the regulators, but also of Jamie Dimon yeah, right. and um, 
the risk managers at, at J.P. Morgan. Now, who, luckily, J.P. Morgan was big enough and making enough money to be able to absorb that loss. But just imagine if it hadn't been, or um, if some of its counterparties in those deals um, couldn't perform, uh, there would have been the same thing all over again, I'm afraid. All right. 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 At a bank that is massive, interconnected with every other important financial institution. I mean, if you looked at Jamie Dimon's comments, it just makes your point during the London Whale. I mean, I believe he referred to it early on when we first broke oh, the news yeah. as yeah. just a tempest in a yes. teapot. That was, something it. that was the exact – no, that was yeah. the exact quote. And then, yeah. you know, by like middle of May, which is about a month later, month and a half later, he was, you know, um, uh, he was doing a mea culpa. Like, you yeah. know, it's my fault. I completely missed this. And it was a much bigger, obviously, deal. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have no problem with Jamie Dimon uh, taking his investment bankers and saying, let's spin off uh, an investment banking partnership and continue to do what we do best. That that would be fine by me. Yeah, but that bank, that partnership would not then um, have access to funding from the Fed, right? And it would would be limited in what it could do with retail banks and and that side of banking. Right. Sounds like Morgan Stanley back in nineteen thirty seven. I think <laughs> yeah. absolutely before Glass Steagall was yeah. the part. Right. Right. <laughs> It's a long time. All right, listen, let's take a break. Uh, we're talking with David Sheriff. The book is Break Up the Banks. We will come back after this message. Hi, this is Kevin Sintemong. This is Beth Cracklauer. Check us out on the Off-Duty Podcast. We talk about food, cocktails, all of the finer things in life. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. And become a subscriber on iTunes. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast, Paul Vina, Stephen Grozer. And if you're interested in more podcasts from the Wall Street Journal family, you can check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. You can become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. We're on Spotify now. And look, follow us on Twitter. We're always active on the social medias. We are at WSJ Podcasts. We're talking today with David Shiroff, author of the book Break Up the Banks. And look, we're talking about breaking up the banks. And uh, my partner, Stephen Grosser, you have a question, right? Well, jump back in. One of the arguments for not breaking up the banks you always hear is that, like at least in the U.S., is that it would be putting our banks at a disadvantage globally. But you're really not talking about just the U.S., breaking up the U.S. banks here. You're really talking about this, uh, doing this globally, right? Yes. I mean, to, to work, this would have to be done um, near simultaneously in the, the big financial centers of the West. Mm-hmm. So European countries, Britain and the U.S., Canada maybe. <laughs> they seem to have, uh, be proud of, this, of the, the solution they, they have there. But um, I think, you know, um, I would include Canada as well. Yeah, okay. You know, that, that's what... It's one point. It's funny you say at one point in the book you say a lot of efforts kind of fall apart just because people get discouraged at the sheer size of it, and and I'm one of those people. And I, you know, I I know you made that case about international coordination, and I just it was hard enough in the United States to get Dodd Frank a weak reform passed, and took years for it to even get implemented. And during those years, it got eaten away by the lobbyists, eaten away by the lobbyists. That's in one country. So, David, what is 
how hard is it going to be to do? I mean, it's one thing to say we need an international solution. I get it and it makes sense because these banks operate on an international level. That's a ma- I, I just I think that is a massive undertaking. The political will. Uh, there's the political, the political will, will there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, well, I think that's right. I mean, I don't think there are many people who would say that this is going to happen simply because um, huge efforts seem to fall and um, just run into the sand. And I'm, I'm yeah. thinking of Elizabeth Warren and her bill right. in the Senate to have a new Glass-Steagall. You know, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of intellectual support for what she's looking for there. Um, but when you talk to the more practical people, the more pragmatic people, they say the bank lo- lobby won't have it. Have it. Mm-hmm. And um, there are many senators who would vote against it right. simply because they know... Um, where their crust comes from. Yeah. And it's not just politicians and the banking industry. I mean, the regulators in the U.S. who are overseeing these banks don't really, you know, don't always support this idea either. No. I mean, one could be cynical and say, well, there's this thing called regulatory capture. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of movement yeah, yeah. between financial institutions right. and regulators, and um, they they have an eye on future jobs, maybe. Um, but he even if that weren't the case, I think there's also the um, the intellectual problem that regulators are always running behind the banks. You know, they're trying to outsmart them, but actually they never will. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, my answer to that is you need very simple rules, and you don't need something like the Basel series of uh, the Basel family of regulation, which plays into banks' hands by saying, you um, build risk models, and we will assess the risk models and uh, let you use those to judge how much capital you need. Well, that's, you know, an invitation to uh, to the party, really. Yeah. Are, are you looking at our, our question sheet? Because you're, you're leading us right where we wanted to go anyhow. Oh, right. I haven't, I haven't <laughs> seen your question sheet. No, no. Uh, we are talking to David Shiriff, author of Break Up the Banks. And, David, if there was – and I want to get into some of your specific proposals – if there was a Venn diagram of things that could be done and things that are very important to get done, what is the one really, really big thing that needs to be done that you think can be done? Or two or three. I don't know. Maybe you have ideas about it. You know, what are the most likely things that can get done that have to get done? You mean in terms of bank reform? Yes. Or what we need from banks? Uh, no, in terms of bank reform. Um, well, I would say one huge thing which we haven't talked about at all is the bonus culture, because I think mm. that has been the absolute curse of um, banking and universal banking ever since it was taken over from Wall Street investment banks back in the 80s. So you had Wall Street partnerships, which um, would have partners who were, would bear the losses as, as well as right. um, enjoy the gains from their institutions. Those were bought by uh, big banks um, in London and New York. and Or um, went public. And in order to reward these people, the same kind of bonus culture was taken over, where um, the bonus pool, ruled, the controller of the bonus pool basically rules the bank mm-hmm. and hires who he likes and, and motivates who he likes. Um, and unfortunately, that culture has survived um, not only Dodd-Frank and other bank reforms, but it's, 
it seems to be alive and well, even though there have been suggestions to cap bonuses um, and to claw back um, variable pay sometime in the future. Um, I, I just don't believe that kind of system can happen. I think the bonus culture needs to be removed from banks which take insured deposits. Mm. How how do you do that? I mean, you're talking about you know, again, like you said, grocery. These banks all here in the U.S. They all they went public. How, how do you undo all that? Um, well, um, the the U.S. government tried after um, rescuing the banks in 2008. It um, imposed a cap on the top 20 people in in banks at five hundred thousand dollars. Um, but that didn't last very long. Right. I mean, it was an attempt, but it failed. And I also think this – once again, this would, like if you break up the banks and you try to limit the bonuses, this needs to, there needs to be a global solution because you, you – you, especially in London, I remember – you had, you know, when there was a lot of, like, you know, talk about regulating compensation for bankers and stuff like that. Oh, we'll go to Switzerland, or we'll move our headquarters here to get around those regulations. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, I think it needs to be the key needs to be that a bank which has access to um, the central bank discount window, right, and which uh, takes insured deposits, is basically a government-controlled institution. It doesn't have to be government-owned, but it matters to the government. Therefore, I think the government could possibly impose a cap on how people at those banks are rewarded. Um, After all, there's an implicit subsidy of those banks Mm. um, because they are so close to the system, the payment system. They are... um, practically too too big to fail. Therefore, I think the government has a lot of leverage if it wanted to say we're capping compensation, not just that we, we are limiting the amount of uh, bonus, but actually overall compensation. Did you want to... Um, no, no, I thought you were. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, gross, gross, <laughs> and I are trying to figure out who's going to ask the next question. Uh, yeah, because Grocer has this big important meeting to get to. Let's okay. let's let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, David. I'm not trying to shortchange you either. We want to give you plenty of time. Yeah. Um, how, you mentioned talking about the banks, and I've heard this before too. You know, the idea that the, the bank should be treated as utilities. How do you get to that point where the banks are, and what does that mean? Well, a, a true utility would be. Um, state-owned or, or state-controlled to a large extent. Um, I don't think we need to go that far, but I think to view them as a utility is a useful exercise because they do have, and they are at the center of the payment system still, even mm-hmm. despite Bitcoin and other wonderful inventions. <laughs> um, and they do uh, take um, deposits which are, which are insured by law. So for those two reasons, there's a kind of base level at which they are are a utility. Um, And I think that utility function can be mixed with um, the private enterprise of a bank. In other words, um, making loans, uh, selling mortgages, etc. But I think those, those two basic functions need to be safeguarded. And at the moment, they're kind of confused with um, all sorts of 
other um, activities that especially the universal banks do. Hmm. Uh, and they're, they're over complex. Yeah. Well, we have been speaking with David Sheriff, author of Break Up the Banks. Uh, David, very last question before I let you go. Is Melville House sending complimentary co- uh, copies of this book to members of Congress and Parliament? Um, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> they should. <laughs> Tell them they should do that. Okay. Yeah, we'll certainly do that. <laughs> or, or, you know, discount it. Dis- they can afford to buy them, you, right? Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, they can afford There's to buy them. There's also a big meeting in Minneapolis on... Uh, April 4th, I don't know whether um, this is Neil Kashkari um, exploring the too-big-to-fail concept. All right. Are you going to that? I'm not. You're not. But the book will travel. Yeah. The book will be there. I hope the book will be there, (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. David, it was great talking to you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the time. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. All right. Uh, Everyone, thank you again for listening, and we will catch up with you on the Friday Food Fight Coming up on on Friday. Don't miss it.